Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Carrie murdered a child. The evidence and the counter evidence. I'm struggling with that. When the facts are filled with coincidences, don't dismiss those coincidences. I have no tolerance for the unexplainable. Well then, sir, you'll have no tolerance for me. Hello and welcome back to Still Watching the Outsider. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. This week, we are talking about... The Outsider, Episode 8, Foxhead, which is written by Richard Price and directed by J.D. Dillard. That is a name that we will be discussing a little bit uh, more as we go on. Um, if you're just joining us for the first time on Still Watching, what we do every week is uh, we break down an episode of television, of a, of a season of television that we are currently sort of obsessing over. Um, we are almost all the way through with The Outsider. Next, we will be returning to an old favorite. Uh, Westworld uh, is coming up next after this. But we are we are in the final stretch of The Outsider. We will not be spoiling anything that happens after Episode 8 uh, uh, Foxhead. We're just containing it up to here. Um, I do have a little bit of book knowledge in my head, but I, I think the show is deviating enough from the book that it's not really going to uh, I- impact the discussion at all. Though I did know we were headed towards a cave. So now that we're in the cave, that's like the major knowledge I knew. Now yeah. that we're in like full-blown, full-blown cave stock, I, I'm like, oh, okay, great. I don't have to like worry about spoiling the fact that a cave <laughs> is coming. So there you go, guys. <laughs> All those cave purists out there. I know, I know, I know, I know. Just keep keep you innocent about the caves. Um, 
if you want to email us, you can always email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We love getting feedback from you guys. And uh, we have a couple emails this week that relate to this episode um, because, you know, we're, we're recording a little later this week. So you guys wrote in about episode eight. Um, this first email comes from Kathleen um, and it's titled uh, Notes on El Coco. Um, and I don't know if she was making a joke, um, but El Cuco, El Coco, whatever you want to call it. Um, or Kathleen has a different idea of maybe what we should call this monster. She says, I've been loving your podcast on The Outsider. Granted, I also listen to other podcasts with The Outsider because it's my current obsession right now, but you guys are my favorite. On Twitter, I mentioned that El Coco is basically a monster version of Regina George from Mean Girls. Um, using child murder to cause chaos instead of copy pages from the burn book. Tonight's episode just reaffirms my notion. We get to see more personality out of it, particularly when it spitefully throws deer guts at Jack while having dinner. Every quote by Regina George, like, why are you so obsessed with me? Uh, or any quote, uh, quote describing Regina, like she's a life ruiner. She ruins lives just matches El Coco completely, uh, in a ridiculous sort of way. And she's like, it just made this episode more enjoyable for me. Does this mean El Coco is going to be run over by a bus in the end? It deserves that at the very least. So that is from, uh, Kate. Uh, so what do you, what do you think of this, uh, Regina George comparison, Richard? I mean, I think it's an, it was the natural conclusion for us to make here. You know, it's just all, all roads are eventually <laughs> lead to mean girls, don't they? <laughs> I, I think so. I think so. Um, do you think on Wednesday, El Cuco wears pink or, um, what do you think? I think we're going to find that out next week. And I think they want, they, oh, you don't okay. want to, you know, give us everything in episode eight. <laughs> Um, all right. And so then we've got, um, an email from Maureen. Maureen has been helpfully writing in some sort of differences between the book and the show for us. So here are some thoughts from Maureen. Um, she writes, uh, okay. Yeah. Because everyone has joined us in our worry about poor Andy, right? Yes. Um, the closer Andy gets to the monster, the more concerned we are. So Maureen writes, uh, number one, are you as thankful as I am that Howie and Alec decided to go, uh, to Cecil? Uh, Cecil is the name of, um, Cecil, Tennessee is where, uh, this episode takes place. Uh, because I'm not sure Andy's chances of survival were very good without some additional tar- targets. Um, and then she says, uh, in the book, um, Claude goes to see his mom, not his brother. So it's a, uh, a, a difference. This, this brother character of Claude's is, is completely show invented. Mm-hmm. Um, but she says the convict brother works fine. Um, she says the festival and child abduction was not in the book. They figured out where, um, the outsider, she calls the, she calls the monster the outsider, which I confess is something we have not thought of doing, I think. <laughs> um, but that makes sense that that's what you would call it. Anyway, she says the festival and child abduction was not in the book. They figured out where the outsider was, uh, transforming before anything happened. Um, but the idea of someone vouching for Claude was a big part of the book. Um, and then she says, uh, in the book, the outsider would suddenly be present in the car with Jack to give Jack direction, but Jack never transported him anywhere. Jack actually thought he was dealing with Claude. He didn't realize there were two Claudes for much of the story. Um, and I don't think Jack ever witnessed, uh, the outsider eating, um, and then the tattoos on Claude's hands were a key marker in understanding that the out that the outsider was becoming Claude. And I thought that was a really cool shot of 
the hand and you see the tattoos are sort of like not as bold as they are on the real claw. They're mm-hmm. like a little faded on his knuckles and stuff like that. Um, and, and then she wrote, I found myself very happy for Richard that Ralph seems to finally be on board. And then she <laughs> says the religious theme, <laughs> the religious themes are all Richard Price. Um, so, oh yeah. And then the last, and then she wrote a follow-up email and I really like this. Maureen says, um, as discussed after episode three, Holly enters the story, the book story and the show story later than the other main characters. The book did an amazing job of having an awkward female character become the leader of the expedition. I was worried the show would not be able to do the same as smoothly, but this episode with the help of last episode did exactly that. Holly is the leader of this group now. Um, and I think that's accurate. Mm -hmm. Like in the, in the vacuum of Ralph's leadership, Holly really, really steps in, especially in this episode. So, um. well, yeah, in the past couple episodes, maybe have been sort of about Ralph seeding um, yeah. th- that that control because you know someone else you know is more authoritative on you know than he is, um, which is another like learning lesson, uh, one of many for that that character. So this this episode, as far as I'm concerned, um, has two major. Uh, reveals to it one is the notion of something called cave stock which i did google and does not seem to exist so unfortunately richard you and i cannot go this summer to cave stock but i already bought the plane tickets so i guess dollywood Um, it is (laughs) dollywood bound um yeah so uh, unfortunately cave stock is not a thing though um you know, obviously there are a number of caves in Tennessee that is a feature of Tennessee. So, um, you know, maybe we should create cave stock. Um, I should say, as far as I could, like, like Googling did not reveal a cave stock to me. Um, it revealed many results about stocks about caves. Anyway, um, if cave stock does exist, please email us stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear about it. Um, it's the kind of creepy mask wearing ritual that I would love to partake in. Um, and then the other major thing I think uh, that we want to talk about right at the start here is this episode is directed by JD Dillard, um, who directed a film called slight, but more sort of relevantly to Hollywood um, has been in the headlines recently because um, they are going to probably be directing a star war. Um, have been tapped to possibly direct uh, a Star Wars. Uh, wh- whoever knows with a Star Wars project. <laughs> right. But I just thought that that was... Uh, really we'll direct half of a Star Wars and then <laughs> be replaced by Francis Ford Coppola or something. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, so it's, it's a, you know, there's a mystery project uh, with J.D. Dillard and Matt Owens, um, who's a, a Luke Cage writer. Um, and not much is known about this at all. Um, but it is the first sort of like Star Wars film project on the horizon since uh, the conclusion of the Skywalker saga. Anyway, I mean, we don't know much about any of this. I just thought that it was interesting. This is good timing um, that that news came out right when J.D. Dillard's um, The Outsider episode was about to come out. That is n- never a coincidence. Um or an accident, I should say. That's that stuff is usually kind of planned. Um, d- uh, was there anything in this episode that made you think, "Huh, I could, I could definitely see a Star Wars from this person"? Well, I mean, per our that email, like maybe we're finally getting the Mean Girls Star Wars 
convergence. It always was probably inevitable, but, um, but no, I mean, I think it's exciting, like, you know, to see a young director. He had a movie at Sundance, um, last year called Sweetheart with, um, Kiersey Clemens that was kind of, um, a pretty well received, like, little kind of low budget thriller. Um, so I'm always curious what, you know, these big studios see in, those early glimpses of someone's, you know, ability and then say, you know, we, we can zoom this, we can, we can blow this up a thousand times with, you know, um, but yeah, I think, I think it's a competent, this is a competently made episode. Um, I think, you know, anyone who wrote it and directed it had to handle a lot of, um, kind of big reveals in terms of a visual sense of like, or oral sense, like we don't see, the outsider eating until the very end, but that's kind of a, that's a huge deal. Like just seeing them, just seeing them much more like as themselves, like rather than this kind of whispered, you know, whispering entity, like that appears in dreams, like, you know, to make the monster actual, I think, um, is not easy when there's been seven hours of buildup. Um, and I think it was handled really well. Yeah. Um, it's so, it's funny. Um, one of our listeners um, mentioned somewhere, I, I forget where, it was like, uh, watch this show with headphones on if you want to find it more disturbing. And that was before this week's episode. And I haven't been paying too close attention to the sound design. Um, but this week, I absolutely did. It was the sound is the star of the show uh, mm-hmm. this week. The The sound of the munching and the chewing is so disturbing. Um, and we get mostly just shots of Mark Menchaca's face, like uh, just traumatized and terrorized by the, the eating sounds. Um, and it's, uh, I, I would be curious actually to, you know, maybe I'll do this, but to talk to the sound designer to find out sort of what was in that sound beyond eating, because it was like, it was distinctly eating, but just otherworldly at the same time. Yeah. And, um, there's like a lower n- t- note to it kind of under yeah. the, yeah, it's, it's really, really effective. Um, all right. So we are, you know, the gang, the gang hits the road and goes, follows Claude to Cecil, Tennessee. Um, where, you know, Holly has this idea of like, we should just have eyes on Claude. Um, we, we credible, witnesses should have eyes on Claude so that we can tell people, you know, no, he was not trying to abduct a child from a cave stock or whatever the case may be. Um, and that's a, I think that is a really good plan. Um, you know, if, if they had had the cooperation of local police, I might suggest just keeping him locked up in prison, but that like, there was a lot of tension around that. So Holly's, uh, Holly's, uh, slumber party, uh, solution was pretty interesting. And Andy, of course, of course, is the first to volunteer to go because he's like road trip. Yeah, maybe I can get some porch snuggles in. Love that. Um, but but Ralph says he'll go. He says it pretty quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and Eunice. And so um, they hit the road. And and even though like Andy is like maybe I'll drive with Holly and we'll get road snacks and have a road trip. Holly wants to go with Ralph and and build that relationship further. So we get a lot more of. You know, some of the things we talked about last week, which in terms of like car conversation, a lot of car conversation. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big um, part of the episode. Yeah. yeah. So, so what do you make of this, of this opening and, and, um, who decides to go and when and, and, and what we get once we hit the road with, with Ralph and Holly? Yeah. I mean, I think that like this is the liminal sort of spot for them. Like they have all sort of, you know, by, by committing to go on the trip, they are, it, 
you know, agreeing to at least some of this crazy premise, right? And, and, and it's going to take them, you know, they're on their way there, but I think, I think the conversations you have while your worldview is changing, not after it's changed, um, are, are certainly interesting and seem to be what this episode was after. And I think that's why we have the kind of staggered, um, decision to go, you know, because like initially a couple of people don't, but then they decide later in the episode, like, and so I think it's just about like how, you know, people in good faith, um, arrive at new understandings of the world. And, um, yeah, again, I think it's crucial then to have them kind of almost talk that through, uh, while they're driving to Tennessee. So Jeannie does not want Ralph to go, right? She, um, well, she kind of she does says, and doesn't, I feel like. Yeah. I feel like she's like, are you just doing that for me? And, you know, whatever. But like, and I think there's a part of her that's like, yeah, of course, worried about the, the risk of it. And, you know, she's been told in a dream, like, you know, something really bad's going to happen. Um, but at the same time, I think like, maybe this is the most like strangely determined, you know, or, or, or righteously determined that she's seen her husband since their son died, you know, um, or, may, or maybe she sees this as him getting some kind of redemption for what he, you know, trotting Terry Maitland out in front of all the, um, the, the, the baseball stadium, you know, um, I don't know. I, I detected something of a glimmer of pride in, in her. Yeah. It's, it's interesting though. Like, um, I, I know I read a spoiler about how this ends. I don't remember what I read. <laughs> I remember they go to a cave. I don't know what happens after that. So I, and the show is diverging enough. I could easily see this show making different decisions, uh, from, you know, the book did, uh, as we mentioned before, Andy is not even a character, um, in the book. So, um, you know, the survival of Andy is a big question mark, but the survival of Ralph, as far as I'm concerned, um, is a big question mark. And, and I'm curious what, you know, Jeannie says this stuff about like, you're blind, you're going blind, like it's going to make you, you know, it's going to, that's going to make you vulnerable. Um, because you don't believe you can't go in somewhere with your eyes shut. Um, and so my question to you, Richard, we don't know what the shape of the next two episodes are going to be, but from where we stand right now, is it a more satisfying story if Ralph survives this encounter, uh, that we assume everyone's heading towards? Or is it a more satisfying story if he doesn't survive? For me, it's more satisfying if he lives because then he gets to kind of live in this new, you know, understanding of the world and new sort of maybe renewed sense of purpose. You know, Um, I think it would be really cruel to leave Jeannie alone, you know, at the end of all this. Um, And I don't think that, I mean, he obviously made a mistake, but he's kind of already atoned for that by like keeping the investigation going, hiring, hiring Holly. Like, so I don't, I don't really see this as him sacrificing himself to like make up for, you know, arresting Terry in public or whatever, you know, the, because now he knows that that wasn't even his fault exactly. And that like something bad was always going to happen because there, this guy had been targeted. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think he has to live. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me because the end of this episode, see, you know, Maureen wrote in and said, I'm, I'm glad for Richard, Richard Lawson that, uh, you know, Ralph finally believed at the end of this episode because, you know, maybe we can be less frustrated about it. There's this, there's this great silent exchange, right? Between Holly and Ralph at the end of the episode. Great acting from Cynthia Revo and Ben Mendelsohn. But I have to think that there is still a further sort of, um, transformation moment coming for Ralph. 
um, in terms of belief. Because, it, you know, he, he gives her a look at the end of this episode like, well, all right, okay, here we are. Uh, I am forced to believe uh, partially, at least. But I, I have to think that, like, in a confrontation, he has to work through at least one more thing in order for it to be, like, a satisfying um, climax of the of the season. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, narratively? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see if that's true and what that is. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. At eBay, you'll always get that feel of real because your fashion purchase will be backed by authenticity guarantee. Whether it's a knit bag, a must-have watch, dreamy jewelry or fire sneakers and fresh streetwear, every step will feel authentic, every flex will feel real. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal with eBay authenticity guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. Something that Holly says uh, to Ralph, a lot of what they talk about, well, some of what they talk about is... um, Jack's backstory, which makes, you know, I've, I've some thoughts on Jack and, and the role he might play in the end here. But, um, but Holly says this really in- interesting thing to Ralph where she says, you challenge everything I say. Sometimes I need that more than I need believers. Um, and I, I really like that idea that like, um, <laughs> I almost think of it as like, uh, Richard Price, uh, subtly talking about working in a writer's room or something like that. I don't know, because it's like when you're running a writer's room on, on a TV show, right? You're, you're the head writer, you're the boss and you've got uh, other writers like a Dennis Lehane or something, you know, I don't know exactly how it worked on the outsider. There aren't always rooms. Sometimes there are many rooms, et cetera. Um, but usually there are writers often they're like younger than you or junior than you. Um, sometimes they're older and, uh, they will have different ideas of how the story should be told. And so this idea of trying to lead a group, this is true of any group. I was just thinking specifically how it affects a TV writer, um, that there will be people who will question you and sometimes relentless questioning and can feel undermining. And sometimes it can just feel like it's making you sharper. It's making you be your best self, your best kind of leader. Um, does that, Mm -hmm. does that land with you at all, Richard? Yeah, no, I think so. And I think, I think, um, Definitely, this has become is a show about like learning to not just work with other people, but also like admit when you don't know something or trust in you know someone else to kind of 
you know, believe, trust in their vision enough to like hear them out or follow them into some, you know, like, I think, I think that can be hard for people, maybe especially men or whatever, but like, um, yeah, I think you could apply it to, to so many, um, both working situations and just like, you know, other sort of socially, social organ, social organizations in your life or whatever. Um, and yeah, but I think, you know, writers are always writing about writing, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you write what you know, and, and I, I love, I love when you can see, uh, a writer working through their process in the text of, of their, of their show. Um, then <laughs> Ralph and Ollie have this interesting exchange that I, I actually don't know if I know exactly what I think happens here, but finally it's Ralph's turn to tell a story about like a supernatural encounter. And he's not talking about the visitation from his son. Um, he talks about this thing with his mom and this song, Washington Square, mm-hmm. uh, and how it came on the radio. Um, like, you know, she was dying. He, uh, played it for her and then he, uh, you know, didn't hear it until later in life and when he was thinking about her and it came on the radio. And then Holly goes, I think that sounds like a coincidence. And then they laugh a lot. And then he goes, you know, my mom would have loved that. Um, I can't tell if he was testing her or what, what did you make of that exchange? Well, we like, see, did he make that up to test her or yeah, what? We see something similar in, you know, the story that, um, Andy gets told, you know, that sounds all scary and ominous about Holly being able to predict who's going to die and how or whatever. And then they yeah. laugh because I think that like in both, in both of those car conversations, what they're, what they're really saying is, can you believe what we're doing, what we're doing right now? Like what we are mm-hmm. in a, in a car with like relative strangers to do right now. Like, and I think that, yeah, you have to sort of like, uh, I guess extend a bit of like both credulity and incredulity, which I think both of those mm-hmm. conversations kind of nicely do where Ralph is saying like, yeah. And like, I think Holly is saying too, like, yeah, you know, it's not, like, I'm not saying I believe that everything is cosmically, you know, supernaturally arranged. Like sometimes there is coincidence. I think, Ralph would have been maybe just as content if she had reacted like more credulously being like, Oh wow. Yeah. Like maybe there was something happening like either way she gave the right answer. If that makes any sense. She definitely did. Absolutely. Um, and that's, I mean, Holly might be somewhat socially awkward, uh, you know, but she, what I like about Holly is even though she is sort of, quietly determined to lead and plow forward with this um, project. She cares tremendously what Ralph thinks of her. Yeah. And I don't even think that's gendered. It's not, I don't think it's even like a young woman, like really needing the approval of, of this older man or anything like that. I just think it's like, she sees in him like a good man and she values his opinion and she wants to be seen as, as you know, good and right and on the right path in his eyes. And, um, I don't see it as paternalistic. I just think it is like, a a, 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 a like really beautiful and unusual matchup of two investigators. We've seen so many iterations of like the buddy cop sort of thing. And this is just something that feels so different, um, in a really special way. Um, and this is part of it where she's just sort of like, um, Andy, you're cute. I like you. Uh, but I'm going to ride with Ralph cause I still got more work to do and I really want to get us on the same page here. So I'm going to go and I'm going to try to like, 
you know, not, not browbeat him into seeing it from my point of view, but just like keep slowly moving, you know, closer to each other, um, on this team. And I really, really like that. So, yeah. And I think that like, like having those conversations with him maybe helps shape her, like his skepticism helps kind of buttress her, you know, her believing it, you know, and so it doesn't go too far, you know, I think it's like they, they give each other kind of interesting checks and compliments and, and all that. I'm going to talk about one more car conversation mm-hmm. and then we're going to um, roll over to the Bolton brothers. And this is, um, this is exactly as you say, um, <laughs> uh, Eunice talking to Andy about uh, Holly's ability to tell if someone's about to die, uh, which it seems like him just messing with Andy, but also does plenty to elevate our blood pressure and concern around Andy. Um, does that conversation make you more concerned for Andy or less concerned for Andy, Richard? Well, I don't know. I mean, I recently saw a Twitter um, you know, circle of protection around Andy's name, um, that I think we were both <laughs> tagged on that. Um, so that has me feeling good that the, the Andy army is out there protecting him. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that was kind of a misdirect in a way. Um, yeah. and, and, and that it, almost made me feel like Andy was safer. Yeah. Than I had been concerned yeah. because yeah. of that. Yeah. 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 And I think again, but it might it was, be a double. Yeah. It was just like, you know, another nice incident of someone turning to someone else in this world being like, isn't this nuts? <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, all right. So speaking of, of people who are going to be skeptical of, of everything around them, we, uh, we get some time with the Bolton brothers, something that we said last week that we were going to need more of in these final episodes was like much more of Claude and much more sort of understanding of Claude. Um, and, you know, what better way to do that than to put him in his home with, with a family member. Um, I'm not convinced we're all the way where we need to go, but we still have two more episodes this season. So hopefully we'll get, um, some more Claude stuff. I'd love to see Patty Considine get like a really good meaty monologue, uh, whether it's uh, no pun intended of, of eating, uh, deer, but, uh, you know, whether it's in outsider form or in, um, actual Claude form, but um, we get this this character uh, of his brother Seal, played by the British actor Max Beasley. My question here is: If I had one critique of this season, it would be that Patty Considine, who is an Irish actor's uh, Tennessee accent, is a little erratic it's not erratic it's just not very actually tennessee um it's irish by way of tennessee and then i'm like oh and then they put another uk actor as his brother maybe to match the accent or i was like because i was like okay maybe once uh he gets around actual like tennessee folk he will start sounding more authentically tennessee but they paired him with uh, another uh, uk actor so the two of them are just sort of like making up this uh dialect together um what what did you think of Seal Bolton and and his introduction to the narrative? Yeah, I eventually decided that they paired him with another somewhat accent struggling <laughs> uh, actor from his homelands um, uh, <laughs> or his least adjacent I- I- island adjacent. Um, because yeah. um, uh, to uh, to like make it sound less bad <laughs> to make Constantine. <laughs> so you know, I mean, there are moments when it's fine, but it's just like it's. I don't know. Anyway, who cares? The accents are not what's important. Um, I think it was, I think it was interesting. I mean, I kind of, there's a part of me that would have liked to have seen Claude with his mother, but I guess, you know, 
we already had the stuff with, you know, the kind of horrible thing with Jack's mother. So like maybe they wanted to kind of shake that up and, um, you know, talk about, I guess we kind of see where Claude got a little bit of his belligerence now, you know, and like maybe we see more of like why he could be isolated. Cause like his closest kin was a sort of, you know, brother he didn't seem to have seen for a long time. And, you know, um, and I think it, I don't know, maybe in some ways, like, uh, I guess Terry wasn't very isolated. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe there's nothing to that, but anyway, yeah, I, I it's a weird, it feels kind of a little late to be introducing what seems like a semi significant new character. Um, but you know, I, I guess I liked how we functioned in this episode. Yeah. I think the, you know, I was trying to figure out why a convict brother rather than like a wheel, wheelchair chair bound mother. And, um, I think, um, it, it might have to do with Richard Price's uh, ongoing fascination with, you know, the criminal justice system and, you know, the, the way in which these things are cyclical, because in this episode we do have, um, Claude arrest stopped and arrested for no, for a reason, but no actual reason, right? He stopped because they want to, you know, the, these people called ahead and, and asked for him to be detained and they want to protect him. Ultimately, it's a, it's a, an altruistic reason, but still watching a character get pulled over and arrested, um, you know, without having actually done something, um, is, feels very Richard Price to me, right? Um, and then, so to have this, like, low level drug dealing brother who's in anger management, it's just sort of like a, yeah, what else are you gonna do in this town? Like, if you're not a spelunker, I suppose, like, what else are you gonna do in Cecil, Tennessee, but maybe, you know, be a, a low level criminal? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't mean to, besmirch Cecil, Tennessee, which I think is a fictional place. But, um, but yeah, I, I just think, I think that, and also maybe like, maybe this idea of doubling, you know, cause they, 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 they look, they don't look that similar, but they look similar enough. You know, they're a little, a little salt and pepper grizzle on them. Um, these, uh, erratic accents and, um, maybe like there before the grace of God would go Claude, like Claude got out of mm-hmm. Cecil at least mm-hmm. and and you know maybe he's not making like an incredible life for himself in, in working in that strip club but like at least he's not in anger management um i don't know or maybe he should be but that idea of doubling and sort of like you know who who could who might you be um what is your better nature is 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 seal bolton the like worst version the you know the worst version of Claude bolton i don't know um he does seem to be good at puzzles though so there is yeah. that um, yeah, and like the yeah, the outsider, like guiding guiding Claude to family, because that way there would be more to feed off of or, or control. You know, like I think that's um, right. Yeah. And I know that Jack is still in the picture doing um, doing the bidding, fetching uh, deer and stuff like that. But Seal seems like a perfect candidate for like a, a thrall, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. in terms of um, we saw um, that co- the cousin earlier. So like Seal Seal might be a good. Uh, a next target for that, making him a vulnerable one. And I wonder, I mean, and, and Jack's anger, uh, and Seal's anger, like, I wonder if they're trying to make like that connection there. Um, it seems like there's not enough time for Seal to break out in a terrible bubbly neck rash, but you never know when a neck rash will hit. So, you yep. know, we, we might, we might still see that. Um, 
All right. And then, you know, our last, our last party, um, of interest in Cecil, Tennessee is obviously Jack and the transforming, uh, Claude. Uh, so <laughs> a listener elsewhere, uh, wrote uh, the phrase El Claude out to me, which I think is a good, uh, <laughs> yeah. description of, of what, uh, the outsider is doing right now. But we get, yeah, we get him. It, his he's almost fully formed. We get a shot of his face later in the episode, and it looks still looks a little droopy, mm-hmm. but um, he's mostly all the way. Patty Considine. One uh, benefit of uh, this actor's uh, funky accent uh, is that when he had the mask on, even though I already suspected it was him, there was zero doubt to me who was under that mask. So I'm like, well, no one else in the world sounds like that. Right. So we know who's wearing, uh, was wearing the fox hat, uh, mask there. Um, the, the whole like family traveling towards the cave, the adorably innocent, nerdy boy who loves caves and is very vulnerable, his sister, his parents or grandparents, I couldn't tell what, um, the overpriced ticket to cave stock, and then the encounter at the festival with the masks. Um, very evocative, a lot of dread. It did feel early to like have the boy go missing. So there was a part of me that was like, this might not go off without a hitch the way that El Claude wants it to. But, um, but the mask stuff particularly felt nice and spooky and a little, um, a little true detective, uh, for me. I don't know, maybe cause like people wear bird heads in season two, true detective, but, um, what it like, you know, how does, yeah. how does the cave stock encounter, uh, work for you? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think we needed those, those scenes in the camper because it was like, well, again, these are here, here are some of the pieces now being put on the board unwilling, you know, un, un, unwittingly, like they, they will be part of this kind of grief feast or whatever, you know, or, or potentially could be. But I think that, you know, having him not succeed and not because of anything that this, you know, little hunting party has done, but because the sister is just being that much, you know, that vigilant, I guess, um, is interesting because like this, this kind of general low level goodness, decency in the world is like, kind of defeating this guy, you know, at least in this moment, this, this kind of entity of the opposite, you know, uh, side of things. Um, and, you know, I th- also thought just like that he just walks up to the kid and like, is like just trying to like, you know, la la la, be casual walking out with him in this big public space is like, I, you know, I was thinking about, I was watching Netflix has this new show, um, where they use like crazy high def cameras or something to shoot at night. Um, high, I guess high exposure camp. Um, and you watch like lions hunting in the Serengeti. And we, you know, we tend to think of lions as these kind of like all knowing, like all powerful, you know, like queen. I mean, they're all the women hunt, hunting. So queens of the, the jungle, you know, whatever. And you watch them actually hunt and you're like, no, this is pretty arbitrary. They're just kind of like trying on, on something and then like can off, often, you know, don't, don't hit their mark. And, and, and I don't know. So I thought I saw something kind of, Again, more interestingly, um, it, that it, it makes the outsider L, you know, Claude, whatever, like, um, vulnerable and that, that way kind of scarier in a way, because now he's like really desperate. And like, how is he, you know, how is he going to kind of reach out? Which is, um, like, how is he going to kind of try to satisfy his hunger now that, um, his first kind of main target has not been successful? So I don't know. Like, I, I like that he did not succeed in this episode. 
Yeah, and it's interesting that he went out hunting himself, um, cause I think, uh, our, our understanding is that usually, like, the Jack figure would bring him the kid. Right. Uh, Jack definitely brought him other things, uh, in this episode, including, like, uh, you know, a, a man that dies earlier in the episode, but, um, I think the evolution of Jack is something we're meant to keep a really sharp eye on. Um, obviously he seems just like really, um, uh, you know, racked with guilt and upset, uh, you know, and, and traumatized, um, in this role. He's, he's the furthest thing from a willing participant here. Um, the, the gruesome snacking sounds and the roar, uh, <laughs> uh, which is, it was tremendously effectively done. Like, uh, caves, cave, caves are always good for audio, um, you know, moments, but, um, the, um, the soft focus, like the out of focus in the background, and then you like hear the roar, but we don't have to see it. Um, and it, it's just like perfectly calibrated to be spooky. Um, and, and so like, if I had to guess something, once again, I don't know any spoilers, but if I had to guess something, I would say the fact that, that Ralph in this episode mentions that Jack was a sharpshooter and we've seen him, oh, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. sharpshoot at the beginning. So he mentions the fact that Jack's a sharpshooter and we're seeing Jack trying to fight this role that he's become like, I, you know, I, I would not be surprised if Jack comes through an heroic moment, uh, with a long distance shot at some point, uh, in this. Yeah. Well, wouldn't that be the, the rule of, um, Chekhov's angsty demon possessed <laughs> hunt, sharpshooter. If you introduce yeah. it in the first act, it has to go off in the third. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a fair point, you know, because like, I, I think that the, this this particular story or the or the this adaptation of it does seem to be making the argument that good can prevail and maybe it can even prepa- prevail with Jack. You know, um, we ter- certainly seem pointed in that direction. I am sort of interested that we do, like in some ways I'm not I'm surprised we don't have one hour of the show left that we have two. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Maybe there will be more sort of t- twists and turns before we get to the climax. And there might be a, uh, you know, this is a kind of show where I could see them having, like, if they, if they do encounter, um, the monster next week, I could definitely see them having an episode after that's sort of like, or, or, right. or the, you know, the big encounter maybe starting the final episode and then it's sort of like, and now what? Um, I could, I could definitely see that happening. Kind of the Game of Thrones um, style that you pointed out to me is that, like, you know, in episode nine, they would do something huge and then right, 10 right. would be the kind of like wrap up. Yeah. Yeah. I've had some emails from folks that, you know, I didn't read them out, but I've had some emails from folks looking for something a little twistier in this season. Um, like, um, did El Claude scratch someone else? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, uh, grumpy cave stock dad or like, um, you know, is actually something very twisty and, uh, you know, going on. Um, and I just don't think that that's what this show is. I don't think, you know, maybe, you know, El Cuco, the outsider will survive and maybe there will be like a, a, a lingering, uh, where, where might it hit next sort of question. Um, I, I don't think that's usually like what a Stephen King conclusion is and, you know, like Pennywise has to be defeated sort of thing. Um, but I, 
And I don't think that's what the show is. I don't think the show is trying to like trick you, got do like a gotcha thing. We're not watching Westworld yet. You know what I mean? Like that's not what the show is. But maybe you guys are right. But uh, if you're wondering why I didn't read your like deep conspiracy theory email about the outsider, that's because I don't think that's the show we're watching. Um, yeah, and no, I, you know, so it doesn't feel that way. And like, um, I kind of don't want it to be that, I guess, you know, I'm sort of more into yeah. like the cars, conversations and cars, I guess. Um, so, so it's interesting <laughs> yeah. just you talking about this, like I, and like the kind of the end, the potential end of things, like maybe next week or the week after is that like, and maybe they didn't really have a choice because what else were they going to do? But like that they drive to Tennessee to kind of encircle Claude in a level of protection so they can kind of, you know, confirm his alibi together. But that kind of means, and they're, then they're kind of just waiting for something to happen, which means that they're kind of just waiting for a kid to be killed, you know? Um, and so I, I think that they're, they're, they don't seem like this like big avenging force. They're more protective. Um, and I think that maybe speaks a little bit to the show. Um, it's not passive exactly, but it's pacifist, I guess. Um, and yeah, so I think that like that maybe that's another reason why we're not getting, um, like big kind of, robust twists and turns it's because like that's not the kind of energy level the show is on right it's just very low-key like you know i feel like four episodes ago you and i were like how do they have like six more episodes of content in this season and Mm -hmm. yet here we are and it's all just been like slow boil conversations in cars there's a great um conversation um, that happens between Alec and Howie where Alec, uh, explains why he didn't want to go to Tennessee. And he says, it's cause I tasted pennies. Yeah. I tasted copper in my mouth, that whole thing. And that's just the kind of thing where like, do I know narratively why these two characters didn't go? Uh, I think it fits into what you're saying about like, um, the hour of belief, the hour mm-hmm. I first believed sort of thing. Like, like, w- you know, when do you cross over? When do you hit the road? The staggering, is maybe a little bit more narratively satisfying rather than like, you know, six people descending on uh, Claude and Seal's house all at once. Well, yeah, um, you have to have Han show up in the Millennium Falcon as a kind of happy <laughs> surprise at the end of the first right, Star Wars. Right. You know, you don't, you don't have him go to the Death Star at the, in the first place. Right. Um, but, uh, but that, that monologue from Alec about the pennies in the mouth. I mean, like that, that, that these are the moments that really elevate this season of television. Um, there have been so many of those little conversations between these investigators, um, with very evocative language. And it just feels very satisfyingly Richard Price slash Dennis Lane slash the other folks who are working on the show. I think they've done an amazing job taking the great stuff or, or maybe this is from Stephen King. It doesn't strike me as a very Stephen King thing, but maybe pennies in the mouth is pure King. Um, I have to say my favorite moment of the episode is Holly's casual, like, I never liked elephants, uh, moment with the oh, puzzle. So I think that was like, it was so, so small and so, so perfect. So, um, the, the implication yeah, so, being yeah. that she visually solved the puzzle without having to put it together, right? Right. That seal, seal was like, oh, I never look at the cover of the box of the puzzles that I'm doing because like, I like to have it, um, you know, be a surprise or whatever or that's part of the challenge of the puzzle and he's got the pieces and they're barely hooked up and holly just looks at all the random and just figures it out right yeah. like oh those are definitely elephants that's great yeah. and you see you see seal pick up the box like un uncover the box of the puzzle and be like oh what the fuck it's elephants <laughs> um yeah great moment yeah. um all right is there anything 
else that we want to make sure that we talk about in terms of this cave stock, uh, Fox head episode? Uh, well, I mean, you and I should talk about, um, the, like figuring out the, you know, going to p- pigeon forge versus Cecil for the, because, you know, cause there isn't actually a, a cave stock. So, but that, I don't think our listeners really care about those travel logistics. <laughs> um, yeah, but if you're like the the cave spoiler, the thing that I've been dying to say about the cave, um, <laughs> oddly enough, is that it feels very. It's it's why I keep. It's one of the reasons why I keep thinking about it, uh, the Stephen King book, it because that is like the, the sewer encounters and cave encounters feel very mm-hmm. similar to me. So that it seems like King returning to something. You know, Pennywise lurks in the sewers, and this thing is lurking in some caves. So it feels very of a piece to me. Um, Unless we're going to get some kind of. Um, allegory of the cave you know plato thing uh next week which i really hope we don't because i hated philosophy class but um you know there's a cave these people are literary i wouldn't put it past them <laughs> we do have this nice moment um you know uh, in this episode where Eunice disappears at one point and he's gone to you know he's just found a random church and is sitting in it and holly gets a uh, you know seems to get a sense that he's in there uh, is my interpretation of what happens. And she sort of uh, wanders over and goes in and sits next to him. Um, and they, I think they say something like any port in a storm or something like that and uh, hold hands. And once again, it's this, um, I, I was reminded of, um, it's like a fellowship. This is the fellowship of the ring, right? It's the mm-hmm. fellowship of the, of El Cuco. And, you know, here are two characters who have barely interacted, Holly and Eunice, but they are uh, bound together by this project, which requires them to be quite vulnerable in that they have to like say, I believe that monsters could be a thing. And I am here to try to hold back the dark uh, in whatever way I can, Wh- and whatever that means, religiously, spiritually, you know, mystically, etc. So, um, I just I, I thought that that moment was really powerful as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, a, an example of like this show just taking its contemplative little time, which I you know, which I I really appreciate. You know, it's just like it's uh, you know, it's maybe not gonna, it's not lighting up the internet exactly, but um, I'm happily surprised that this wasn't just a completely unrelenting grim you know horror series i've been seeing it uh, you know this is completely anecdotal but i feel like i've been seeing the audience grow for this Mm -hmm. i feel like word of mouth has been good enough that people are binging and catching up for the finale here um so i i've just heard i've just heard of a lot of people just sort of uh, cramming in six six five six seven episodes and and catching up so you know if you're if you're just catching up uh we're happy to have you here um uh, we care uh, here at still watching we care a lot about andy um and uh, first and foremost andy of of the i brought you a blanket here let's cuddle on the couch uh on the porch um yeah and pl- yeah, please so, uh, uh send us the horrible sounds you make while binging on the show um, <laughs> from your cave uh good old cave binge i love a cave binge um the uh, i guess let me just wrap up a couple loose ends by saying uh, what do you make of seal taking a photo of ralph while he's sleeping and like wakes him up with the flashbulb what was that about oh yeah i don't i don't i don't 
I, I think he was just suspicious of everything and maybe wanted like proof that they were there. I don't know. It was, it was very interesting. Um, the, uh, I don't, I don't know what to make of seal. I did, I did like the moment where like seal is casually dealing drugs, I guess in a way. And there's some marker that Ralph knows exactly what it is. <laughs> He's just like, Hey, maybe not while we're here in your house. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I just saw a car drive by. What do cops understand that I don't understand at all? Um, so, um, that was just a nice, uh, a nice little moment that I felt like underlined, uh, that Ralph is good at his job. And, um, yeah, I guess, I guess that's it. I mean, it's a very, it's nothing happens and a lot happens. Nothing happens in that we really just move from one spot to another. Um, but a lot happens in that we see, we finally see El Cuco's face. Um, and even if it's like via a grainy, like cell phone footage or something like that, cause we never actually see his face, um, ourselves like in, in that encounter. Um, the mask is in forensics, so presumably they'll find some of those disintegrated fin- clawed fingerprints mm-hmm. um, on the mask. And um, and Ralph is starting to maybe believe, you know? Yeah, certainly in that last shot, he's like, well, <laughs> I think you were right. It's, it's interesting because in last week's episode, um, we found out that Glory... Uh, you know, who you might recall had a breakdown around the, um, the pot arm house, um, that Gloria decided to sue everyone. And then, but then like really quickly you find out in this episode that she's not going to be suing Ralph, um, because she tells Howie, uh, I guess, uh, Ralph is the best shot at exonerating Terry still. Right. And, um, the only reason I can think that that information is in there, um, is just that added, um, I don't know if I want to say pressure, but that added her belief in Ralph is a lot of what's spurring him on here. Um, that, that desire to fulfill that for glory, uh, is important to Ralph and it's pushing him to make himself vulnerable outside his comfort zone. So mm-hmm. there you go. All right. Well, that's it. We're in Tennessee. Cave stock is canceled. Um, you know, no more creepy forest critter mask parties. Um, uh, you know, instead, uh, perhaps we will be hunting El Cuco. I don't know, but, um, uh, that is where we are. If you had to, let's, let's do real, real quick. Um, Alec Pelly of the, uh, copper pennies in his mouth, um, fear, uh, survive or does not survive? Oh, um, yeah, I think if anyone's going to go, he's kind of t- t- pr- pretty high on that list for sure. I mean, I think maybe that speech was part of that kind of setup. But anyway, who knows? We we have had misdirections in that regard. What, what do you think? I say Alex going to Alex going to go. That's yeah. what I think. All right. I think he's going to die. Um, uh, Howie, survive or not survive? Bill Camp's character. Um, no, he survives because he's got he's got to kind of like finish things with Glory. He has some suing to do. All yeah. right, um, Eunice survived, not survive. <sighs> oh God, um, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't see this being a bloodbath. I'll say that. Um, so I think if Jack's probably going to die, and one of the one of the merry band of 
Cuckoo Hunters right, the will, like, you know, out, yeah. then that'll be Alex. Well, I, um, so, yeah, no, I, th- I think Eunice is going to be okay. Um, or he'll be injured. He'll be like Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. <laughs> we'll have him sprawled out on a table with his shirt yeah. open. Uh, Seal Bolton, puzzle, puzzle fanatic, Seal Bolton. Survive, not survive. Survive, but maybe ominously at the end of the show walks away and you think that he's been maybe infected. Ooh, uh, love it. Claude, survive, not survive. No, 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 no. I don't, well. Claude's gonna die? Well, I don't know. I, I don't know, because I don't know what happens to someone who's been doppelganged if the doppelganged thing dies. No I don't one, know. Yeah, no one's ever doppelganged and survived. Yeah. Um, I just don't think that Claude has done enough ill right. to make me feel like he needs to go. Um, not that you need to, you know, n- neither, nor has Alec. Um, and then, you know, Holly, I think, has to survive. Ralph, I think we've already decided, should survive. Because uh, it would be horrible to leave Jeannie alone. Um, and so that brings us to Andy. Andy, what do you think? I mean, again, I- I'm going to say, I'm going to say makes it. Yeah, I have faith in the, the, the Twitter protection circle, so... Okay, so Twitter protection circle means yeah. so. Sorry, Alec Pelly, you are you are love. You seem very cool, but that penny monologue uh, put it over the top. I yep. think uh, you are not going to make it. You are a sacrificial lamb. You Alec dies so Andy can live. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have any thoughts or theories about who's going to survive or live, um, please do email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail dot com or any other uh, observations you might uh, want to know. It's so funny. Um, you really nailed it without having seen this episode, Richard, you really nailed it early in the season. I do think that big daddy's hangry barbecue, uh, is more important than we actually thought because like, what is, um, El Claude doing in this episode, if not having like a big daddy's hangry barbecue of his own, right? Like (laughs) that's right. It's really, but that idea of devouring is something that you really, uh, sort of latched onto early on. And I think, uh, this episode really proved you right. So, uh, good. I I like to be right in all hangry matters. (laughs) All right. Until, uh, next time, where can folks find you? Oh, just huddled up with that coven protecting sweet, sweet Andy. Um, maybe I'll get a tweet out or two at Rylaws and I'll be writing at VF.com. Where will you be until the penultimate episode? (laughs) <laughs> I will also be at VF.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe wrote this as I try to put together this puzzle. that <laughs> seems to be about elephants. Um, and, uh, you know, always find us still watching pot at gmail.com and we will see you and poor sweet Andy. We hope next week. Rachel Martin, you probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. From PR.